title of today's message is The Comeback. We're going to be in Judges 16, if you want to turn there in your Bible. Today we're concluding the Heroes of Faith series by looking at one of the most enigmatic people in all of scriptures. In fact, his inclusion in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11 led many early Bible scholars to question whether the entire book of Hebrews should be included in the canon of scripture that we have today. And I'd like to introduce this man in a unique way, because in many aspects he was very similar to a beloved movie character named Rocky Balboa. So I'm going to introduce him the same way a herald of an ancient hero would introduce them when they would come into the arena. So here we go. Introducing the champion, born to a barren mother who was visited by God himself. When he was but a young man, he tore apart a lion with his bare hands. He tells riddles that no one can solve. He once burned down a field by tying torches to the tails of 300 little foxes. He followed that out by taking on over a thousand of his enemies, armed only with the jawbone of a donkey. He tore down a two-ton city gate and carried it uphill for 40 miles, both ways. Three times, three times the Philistines plotted to kill him. But he escaped every time. This man, he stands six foot, eight inches tall and weighs over 300 pounds of hulking muscle. Hailing from the northern tribe of Dam, give it up for God's champion, Samson! That's the way they used to announce it in the old days, and I think Samson kind of fits that kind of an introduction. And it is quite an introduction for a man who did all these amazing exploits for God. Samson was a man that God used over and over and over again to plague the Philistine people who were always mistreating the people of God in Israel. And with all these exploits, with everything that Samson did, we would think he is a man of great virtue. A man who would spend hours and hours a day in fasting and prayer and seeking God. We would expect to find a man that was very humble, very consistent, very hungry for the things of God. But then we meet him. Has anybody ever met a person who you really admire and found out they're just not the person you thought they were? That's kind of Samson. We would meet Samson hearing all these great exploits he did. We'd, we'd expect to find a, a monk or something or, or some type of great holy man. But we would meet him and find that he's very arrogant. He's very bombastic. And he's just not a very nice person. And he would walk away from the encounter wondering, how can God possibly use such a man like this? God's sovereignty can be very difficult to understand sometimes when we read and we really think about the people and situations that we read about in the Word of God. And as we read about the life and death of a man like Samson, we often come away with more questions than answers. When you really start digging into scriptures, you start answering or asking it questions. And today will not be much different. 
The ability to completely understand the sovereignty of God in these situations is clouded by the question, how can God use, a holy God use such an unholy man? So I want to explore that today and explore how even when a person has grievously failed God, or how a person has squandered all that he has done for you and has given to you, that you still have a chance for a comeback. And this is where Samson is. If you read his story, it starts in Judges chapter 13. And we see him to be the judge over Israel. The word judge, remember, remains a champion or a deliverer of Israel. And he was a deliverer of Israel against a very fierce people called the Philistines who lived closer to the Mediterranean Sea. And when we read his whole life, we see all the mighty acts of strength that he has done for God. We also see that he has failed to heal even the basic moral commands of God's law to stay in right standing with God. Now, remember last week I said that our salvation isn't necessarily dependent on our personal righteousness. That is all taken care of through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Righteousness is something that is imputed to us because of that. However, our position and our effectiveness within the kingdom of God on earth and even into eternity is dependent upon our righteousness or our right standing with God. Now, Samson has fallen so far away from God that now he is involved with one of the enemy's women. He's dating one of his enemy's women. That's how far he has fallen. This woman named Delilah, she's been tempting Samson into telling her the source of his great strength. And three times, Samson has tried to put her off by, by telling her a lie to get her to stop nagging him. See, women, the effectiveness of your nagging? Just kidding. You guys are going to protect me, right? That's, see, that's why I put two men in the front. <laughs> However, on the fourth time, he tells her the truth, that his long hair is a source of, source of his strength. His long hair is representative of the covenant that his parents made before God about him. And this long hair is the source of the strength. So Delilah goes and tells the Philistines, he goes, I finally found the secret. You guys lay in wait. And she lulls Samson to sleep in her lap and cuts off his hair and his strength leaves him. And that's where we pick up the story in Judges chapter 16, verse 20. Then she, Delilah, called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. A tragic port of tragic sentence in scripture right here. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and took him to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles. They set him to grinding in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again after he had been shaved. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. 
And when the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who has laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. And while they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. And while they stood among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support this temple, so I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women, and all the rulers of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were some 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, remember me, O God, please strengthen me this one last time, and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistine for my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood. Bracing himself against them, his right hand on one and his left hand on the other, Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all of his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. And thus he killed many more when he died than when he lived. Father God, we just ask, Lord, that you will just open our minds to understand how you work through men. Father, we're going to be touching things like your sovereignty today. So I would ask, Father, that you would help me be very careful because I'm going to be discussing the way that you move in humanity, discussing your character, discussing exactly who you are. So help me to be able to teach this clearly and in such a way that brings understanding into our hearts, a way that increases faith in our spirits, and in a way that keeps our eyes focused on you and develops a heart of faith and trust within us. Father, I ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. When I read the story of Samson this week to prepare for this message, I really struggled to find a way to explain this man. Because much of his life is in rebellion against God. And it almost seemed like Samson was used by God almost by accident, almost in spite of himself. And as I read, I wrote down three problems and three questions that have to be answered about his life. And these three questions are important, not just because of a theological head knowledge I want you to have, But they're important to ask ourselves as we continue in our walk with God. So these are the three questions I want to answer today. Number one, how can God use a person who is an unrepentant sinner, who doesn't even remotely want to follow God, how can God use such a man? Now this isn't Samson, this is just in general. In Samson's case is where we come into question number two. How can a saved person, called by God, be allowed to continue in blatant sin and rebellion, but yet still have the power of God upon their lives? How can a holy God endue someone with power when they are in blatant rebellion like that? And three... How does God use our rebellion and our sin to bring us, bring about his kingdom and accomplish his will on earth? These are the three questions about, about 
Samson and about God's sovereignty that I want to answer this morning. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that these three questions could be the, doctor, uh, the subject of a doctorate-level thesis. People like that are going for their PhD in theology write papers hundreds of pages long about each one of these questions. And we're going to try to tackle them in one sermon today. So we're going to try to get a glimpse of how God works in the unseen realm to accomplish his will and purpose through these three questions. So let's start with the first question. How can God use a person who is an unrepentant sinner who even isn't remotely trying to follow him? So let's start with the theological premise and the fact that the Bible teaches. And that is a plain scriptural reading is that God will use any person, any animal, a stone on the ground, and any person, whether they refuse to acknowledge him or God or not, to accomplish his sovereign will, even despite themselves. Now let's define something. I keep using the word sovereignty. So let me define that a little bit because that's, the idea of sovereignty isn't a word that we use today. And, the, and it has to deal with kingship and all that. And as Americans, we don't really know anything about kingship. So let me define this. God's sovereignty is defined as God ruling and interacting with all aspects of his creation and how that is done. So that, that's what God's sovereignty means. And it sounds simple in theory, but it gets very, very complicated when you start thinking of how this is practically exercised in the day-to-day lives of human beings. Human beings who happen to have a free will. The method in which God's sovereignty is applied to our lives has divided Protestant Christianity into two theological camps. The first one is Calvinism. Our brothers over there at the Baptist Church fully Calvinistic. They believe that God, um, God's sovereignty means that God controls every single aspect and every part of creation. He believes that God, they, in, the, in the extreme cases, I don't know if they believe this over there, but in the extreme cases, there are Calvinists who believe that God ordains everything that is, everything that was, and everything that ever shall be, including human sin. I'm not, I'm not going to break that down any further, but the extreme people, the extreme uh, members of Calvinism believe that. And again, that is what the theology that is believed by Baptists, Lutherans, Presbyterians, some of the older uh, Protestant religions. And then there is Arminianism, which is what is practiced by us, the Assemblies of God, Methodists, Charismatic churches, and people like that, that believe that God, God works within human free will that we are still free moral agents and have a free will to do what we want. But God, in his sovereignty, works with that. That is what we believe. Now back to the question of how God can use an unrepentant sinner to accomplish his sovereign will. I have a couple examples from Scripture of how, showing how God can use a person who does not follow him. The first one is Pharaoh, seen in the book of Exodus. Just to tell you the quick, the quick story. Moses was born in Egypt during the time where there was a ruler that declared that all of Israel's boys must be killed at birth because the Israelites were growing too numerous and they were starting to overwhelm the Egyptians to the point where the Egyptians were worried about them taking over the country. So Pharaoh declared that if, an, if a baby is born and it's a boy, they have to be killed immediately to keep the population from getting too numerous. 
Moses is miraculously saved by his mother. His mother places him in a basket and floats him down a crocodile-infested river. So the fact that he survived that at all is a miracle. He should have been eaten pretty fast. And he was discovered by Pharaoh's daughters and brought and raised in that household. And God so arranged it that Moses' own mother turns out to be his wet nurse. If you don't know what a wet nurse is, a lot of women, when, after they have a baby, they keep nursing and help women that, that, for whatever reason, cannot produce breast milk for their babies, so they will give that breast milk away. Our daughter does that, as a matter of fact. And Moses' own mother turns out to be his wet nurse. God so arranges that. And that's an awesome example of God's sovereignty right there, is that God thwarts Satan's plan of using Pharaoh to wipe out Israel. That's, that's really what this was about. God knew, or excuse me, Satan knew that God's plan depended upon Israel, producing eventually the Messiah that would save humanity from their sins. But God so arranges it that Moses gets brought right into the household of the man who is trying to destroy Israel. Moses gets to learn the inner workings of how Egypt works. Moses gets to learn advanced education. He gets to learn advanced military tactics. He gets to learn exactly how Egypt works from being right next to the throne of power. Isn't that awesome? How God arranged that? Moses then turns 40 and discovers that he is of Israel. He murders a, a person who is abusing an Israelite slave, and runs for his life. Spends 40 years in the desert until God calls him to deliver the people from their slavery. Then Moses goes before Pharaoh. This is not the same Pharaoh that killed the, the children. This is his son, the one that Moses grew up with. And demands that Pharaoh sets the people of Israel free. Now imagine you're in charge of a nation and your younger brother, who's been out in the desert for 40 years, comes back and tells you to take away the primary economic um, system that makes your country rich. You're going to be like, get out of here, little brother. You're crazy. And it doesn't help that Pharaoh believes himself to be God. Moses goes before Pharaoh demands that you must set the people free. Pharaoh throws Moses out and a series of ten plagues fall upon Egypt. Now I had to put this perspective with all that backstory because now we get to the crux of the point I'm making. When you read the account of Moses' encounters with Pharaoh in Egypt, during the later plagues, it said that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now that's a very tough scripture for us to read when we consider it in light of the loving God that we know. That the loving God that gave up his only son to save us, we also read hardens a man's heart here. When we're talking about hardening a man's heart, we're talking about removing any chance of salvation from him. That God did this to Pharaoh. That's tough scripture right there. And you say, wait a minute, I thought, I thought we have free will. I thought, we, I thought we are free moral agents, that, that, that God just works on our heart and wants to draw us to him. I thought, I thought that's the God we serve. You do have a free will. Absolutely have a free will. You are completely and totally responsible for every action you commit. 
But your free will is not, more is not more important and definitely not more powerful than the sovereignty of God. So then the question has to be asked, if God causes a person to sin, i.e. in hardening his heart, is that person then guilty of that sin? The Apostle Paul discusses this very question. How can God judge those who through their rebellion accomplish his will? How can God judge that as evil? Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 9. He says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on those he will have mercy, and he hardens those who he wants to harden. So now we have to square that with the doctrine that all humanity have in a free will because it really seems like God is causing a person to resisting him. Isn't in canceling out free will, and if we cancel out free will, how are we still guilty if God is causing us to sin? Again, this is a doctoral level thesis question, but the short answer is there is something that is called general revelation. The fact that the nature of creation itself should cause a normally rational human being to look at it and say, there is no way this came out through time and random chance. There is no way. And if there is a creation, there has to be a creator. This is one of the reasons that, that we are going through this in Sunday school about creation science. If we have a creator, that creator then has the right to do with his creation as he pleases. And that's a very difficult pill for most people to swallow, isn't it? That God has a right to do with us whatever he wants. But that's the biblical truth. Fortunately, we serve a loving and benign creator. The Bible plainly says that God doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance so that they can enjoy everlasting life. And it's my belief that people, in the case of like Pharaoh here, the Holy Spirit had been working on him for years. The Holy Spirit had been trying to break through that pride, to try to draw him to come into a relationship with himself. But he resisted. And sooner or later, there comes a time when the Holy Spirit is grieved, when the Holy Spirit is so offended by your resistance that he stops all efforts to bring that person to God. And that per person's heart becomes permanently hardened towards salvation. One of Jesus' strongly, most strongest worded statement is when he warns against, against resisting and grieving the Holy Spirit. Some of the strongest language in the, Old or the New Testament is right there when he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Because it has permanent and eternal consequences. And that's where Pharaoh is. Pharaoh was witnessing the very hand of God bringing destruction on his country, even into his household. And yet in his pride, he refuses to yield. And eventually God says, have it your way. You don't want me, I'm not going to ask anymore. One man's prideful, stubborn rebellion 
brought down the world's only superpower at that time, and they never fully recovered. His entire military was wiped out. But God still used that stubbornness to accomplish his, salvation's plan, his salvation plan in saving the seed of, is, of Abraham, which was Israel, that God promised the Messiah would come from. <clears throat> A New Testament example is of Judas. Jesus speaks of Judas as a man doomed to destruction, that Judas was ordained, in other words, or set apart or purposed for God's will by God to betray Jesus. We would ask the same question. If if Judas is ordained by God to betray Jesus, then how is he guilty for doing God's will? Well, the same principle applies to Judas as they applied to Pharaoh. He had general revelation. He had something that Pharaoh did not. He had specific and and special revelation in growing up a Jew. He knew the Torah. He knew the scriptures about how the Messiah was going to come. And he had extremely specific revelation. He had Jesus himself for three and a half years teaching him one-on-one. Could Judas have any excuse? Could Judas have any excuse for what he did in betraying Jesus? Yet Judas exercised that free will. He still chose to betray Jesus, which God, who exists outside of time, knew what was going to happen. And that is how he he was ordained, is because God in his foreknowledge saw what was going to happen. And that is how God can still accomplish his will, even with the worst of sinners, is because of that exhaustive foreknowledge. Because he exists outside of time. He can see the beginning, the middle, the end, and everything in between. He knows what's going to happen. So that is how he uses people who refuse to come to him. Answering the second question, and this one is more specifically about Samson. How can God tolerate blatant sin in the lives of those he has called into specific positions within the kingdom of God? Now, this applies in general to all Christians. It applies to you and me, because you and me are the same. We all have a position in the kingdom of God. We are all called to do something for Jesus Christ. If he has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, he has a plan and a purpose for your life that he wants you to fulfill. You have a calling of God on your life. It isn't just the guy standing up here with the microphone. Every single Christian has a call of God on their life. But for the moment, I'm going to focus on those who are called to a position within the fivefold ministry the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, pastor, and the teacher. And some of the considerations about people in those positions that are actually general to all Christians. And how they can, God can tolerate blatant sin in their lives, even though He has called them. Well, number one is they're human. I don't know if you know this, but I'm a human being. I'm not Superman. I think it's just, yep, just a plain t-shirt, no S in there. I'm born with a sin nature. I have the same weaknesses of any human. In fact, some people, especially in the ministry, have glaring weaknesses. They just learn to hide them from you. Especially pride. 
Pride that our Lord uses, by the way, to keep them dependent on, and humble if they're moldable. Paul, for example, talked about the thorn in his flesh that God used to keep him humble. Because Paul, Paul's besetting sin was pride and arrogance. But God sent a, some type of medical thing within his life that kept him humble and dependent. And people have a tendency to idolize spiritual leaders. I know I did growing up. I thought a pastor was Superman. I thought that God had somehow made them without any of the desires and sin or anything that I, that I knew in my life. We all, this also happens through this idea that there's a separation between clergy and laity. There's no difference between you and me in God's eyes. We are all, again, called into the kingdom of God. It's just a different calling than what you have. And who knows, God may be calling some people here into pastoral ministry. And the reality that you see within spiritual leaders is that they are often isolated. Isolation produces loneliness. Loneliness produces wandering eyes. Isolation also produces pride in thinking that you are the man of God and you're going to do it the way I want you to do it. It produces paranoia. I see that, I've seen that a lot in pastors where they think that this part of the church is all against them and, and they start living in their own mind and freaking out about this kind of thing. Isolation also produces a lack of accountability and a lack of growth in their own life because, again, the people put them up on this pedestal and they don't have anybody to talk to or anybody to communicate with, anybody to be open about what they're feeling, of their fears, their hopes, their dreams. They don't feel like they can communicate that with anybody because they want to be the pastor and they want to be the person with all the answers. And it feeds into their pride. There's no iron sharpening iron, no, no brother to come along with them to, to point out the weaknesses in their life. To be able to point a finger in their face like a Barnabas and says, you know that's sin. You know that thought process you're going through right there is sin. And you need to repent from it. They are also attacked even more strongly in the spiritual realm. And I have a confession to make. When I was thinking about this and preparing this message, when I moved up here, I thought I knew what spiritual warfare looked like. I thought I did. I've, after all, I've been an associate and an intern pastor for 14 years prior to coming here. I knew what spiritual attack was. I learned under it. Sometimes I stumbled under it, but I thought I knew what it was. Then I became a senior pastor. You know, the spiritual attacks I had before were kind of like a, somebody playing with a garden hose and hitting you in the face with it. You know, once in a while you get that spiritual attack. It's like, oh, you know, shake it off and keep going. When I became a senior pastor and I actually... Um, talked with my former senior pastor about this. I said, is this right? He goes, yep. <laughs> I, said, I said, well, because the, the spiritual attack has turned into the occasional garden holes in the face to a constant large bore fire holes that somebody is constantly firing at you. And he goes, yep, that's it. That's why you need a prayer life. Why do you think I've been telling you for 10 years you need a prayer life? It's unrelenting, and without that prayer life, without people that covenant with you to pray for you constantly, it will wear you down and it will take you out. But God uses that too. God uses that. He uses it to further develop dependency upon him. And you know what I found out since I've moved up here? You can't do God-sized work with human-sized strength. You just can't do it. You need the same power source that God has. And that power source is called the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
And I praise God that he has made that available to us. The prophet Zechariah, in fact, looking at this mountain-sized plan of God that, that God the Father was showing to him, asked the Father, he said, how can this possibly take place, God? And God said, it's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord God Almighty. God's spirit is the one who does the work. We are just conduits of that spirit. We have to be careful not to allow our spiritual pipes to corrode and block the Holy Spirit's access into us by allowing sin into our life. And that's why God sometimes allows a rebellion and sin to further humble his servants. That's why God sometimes allows that. And that's a difficult thing for us to grasp of how God can use something unholy to accomplish a holy purpose. Let me demonstrate. Most of you have been looking at this wondering what the heck is an onion doing up at the altar? I brought gloves because I'm going to cut an onion. And if I get this on my hands, I will for sure wipe my eyes with it and the sermon will be over. People, our spirits, our souls, whatever terminology you want to use, are like this onion. Yep, exactly. We have layers. If I take this onion, try not to cut my finger off here. You see the little layers inside this onion here. I can peel them back. Try not to make myself cry here. Peel back layers. Now, if I was doing this very slowly and very methodically, every time I peeled one of these layers back, there's going to be some tears, runny noses, and different things. But God uses that sin in our life, or uses the hard times in our life, he uses everything in our life, really, to peel back every single layer. And when every single layer comes off, there's usually a little bit more crying, a little bit more tears, a little bit more pain, but if you keep peeling and peeling and peeling at this onion, sooner or later you get to that core of the issue. And sometimes God has to allow that sin in our life to break down all of these barriers until he can finally get to that core of a problem. It's kind of like surgery. If you have a cancer in the middle of your chest, you don't take a chainsaw to open the chest and pull that cancer out. You have to slowly and methodically go in there very carefully because otherwise you'll kill the person that you're trying to help save. And God works like that in our life where he peels back all these layers and exposes them to us and say, you have this kind of reaction to this situation because of that back there. Maybe you need to forgive somebody. Or you have that kind of reaction because that's what you saw growing up and you need to change your mind about that. Or you have that habit because back then you started it and now you are so habitualized into this thought process that you need to put it under the blood of Christ. You need to speak truth to that thing. And maybe it even means you need to totally and completely avoid it. That's how God can use sin in our life. In fact, it says in Daniel that in some of the last days that many of the wise will stumble so that they may be further refined. God will use our stumblings for that. Now, I'm not. Be very careful of, what, of, of, of thinking this. 
I am not, absolutely not, excusing sin in anybody's life. I am not saying, just allow me to do whatever I want. Because I'm not going to allow you to do whatever you want. If I, if I see something, I might point it out. Don't let me do whatever I want. I'm not saying that. I'm not talking about a totally lascivious lifestyle. I'm talking about just God knowing as a father exactly how to bring us into heaven and exactly how to mold us and shape us into the image of his son. That brings us to our third question. Don't worry, we're almost done. How will God use our rebellion to bring about his kingdom and accomplish his will on earth? We have to remember that we are children. When we, come into this, when we become born again and become Christians, we enter it as children. We have to be given time to grow up. And that's going to look different for everybody. Sometimes within the kingdom of God, we forget that new Christians are newborns. And you don't pull a newborn from its mother, slap its butt, make it cry, throw running shoes on it, toss it on a track, and tell it to win a gold medal. That's, that would be stupid, wouldn't it? But sometimes within the church, we get a person saved and we expect this gigantic, extraordinary amount of spirituality from them immediately. We need to allow that person to grow up. We need to allow God to do his mentoring work in them. And God has a different plan for everybody. God has a different procedure for bringing you into the image of his son because we all start from a different place. We all bring our own baggage. We all bring our different experiences. We all bring a whole lot of different things to bring, to bring us into the kingdom. So we all have a different path to walk, but the ultimate goal is to become like Jesus. Some's going to take longer than others. We need to exercise grace with each other. Just briefly, I've shared before my salvation experience versus Tammy's. For example, when I got saved and I said the sinner's prayer, I'm sitting on a back porch smoking a cigarette and I got saved. And, but God, that was the last cigarette I've ever even touched, much less smoked. God immediately took that away from me. Tammy took another year after she got saved to quit smoking. God immediately took cussing away from me. I don't remember how long if, if that happened with you immediately. But just different things. When Tammy got saved, she automatically had this great... Before she got saved, I would say... Uh, see, I'm going to get myself in trouble. She could be short-tempered with people who didn't perform well. We'll just say that. But after she got saved, she developed this really heart of love for people that I had never seen in her before. So God did different things with us. You see, God didn't do that with me. I still was short-tempered with stupid people. To be really honest, I mean, I saw a stupid person, I'd tell you, you're stupid. That's stupid because you're stupid. <laughs> I mean, I, I was pretty blunt that way. Tammy, Tammy developed uh, in a different way and in a different um, manner according to God's plan for her. So it's interesting to see when I think back of how God molded and shaped us differently and how we came into different kind of... Uh, of spiritual attributes at different times in our lives. But just like children, if we refuse to grow up, we do need a push. Now I want to talk just quickly about punishment versus chastisement. How many people have ever heard a Christian say, God's punishing me for something? You ever heard that? Can I tell you, God does not punish you if you're his child? He can't. God cannot punish you if you're his child. All punishment was taken by Christ on the cross. All punishment. 
You cannot be punished. Punishment has to do with eternity, and eternity has to do with hell. So God cannot bring hell on your earth to punish you, because then the cross means nothing. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left this crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. So punishment has nothing to do with God and his children. Chastisement, however, has to do with the growth, has to do with growing a person or stopping a person from going down the wrong road. He will chastise you. Now, if, I, if you are, are caught in sin and I find out about it or you confess it with me or confess it to me, I am not going to, you know, just go, fine, pow, 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 on the back of your things with my belt. I'm not going to punish you. I'm going to chastise you. I'm going to say, okay, let's, let's look at this and see what happened that got you to this point. That is chastisement because I'm not interested in punishing you. I'm interested in growing you into the kingdom of God. And that is how God deals with these situations. And that's how God can use even our sin and rebellion to accomplish his will. And that's how he worked in Samson's life. And that leads us to our final point, And that is the comeback. How we come back from situations like this. How many people here woke up this morning? Raise your hand. <laughs> James is sleeping. Get him, Sean. <laughs> Everybody still breathing? Yeah. Aaron here is still pretty good. Onions didn't get us. Then God isn't finished with you yet. Amen. In the scripture we read earlier, Samson's hurt. He's hurt. He's got his eyes gouged out. He's been humiliated before the entire world of his time. Think about this. He went from being the most feared man in his, in his world to the most pitied. Now he's a the guy they bring out as a joke. Now he's a guy that brings out and, you know, they'll have people running around him and hitting him in the back of the head saying, oh, who hit you, Samson? What are you going to do about it? <laughs> I mean, people that before he had his hair cut, we would have grabbed him by the skull and just crushed him, killed him instantly, are now mocking him. And God blinded him. Why did, why did God allow him to be blinded? I would say the same reason he allowed the apostle Paul to be blinded. Pride. He had only one place to look, and that was inward, at his own spiritual poverty. And Samson saw that poverty of spirit within him. He saw that what the pride in his life had done. And he makes the right choice. And instead of languishing, instead of just going into depression, he uses his failure to glorify God and fulfills his ministry to deliver that crushing blow to a nation that had plagued Israel for hundreds of years. So I would ask you, what is your comeback story? You might think you're at the end of your rope. You might think that God couldn't possibly use you, can't save you, can't help you. But if you still have breath in your lungs, if you still have blood in your veins, he ain't finished with you yet. We talk about all the ways that God can use your failure and turn it into your triumph. But you have to come to him and say, here it is, Lord. Take it. Take my failure. Take the pain. Take the suffering. Take all those lost years, God. 
I need you to restore what the enemy has tried to use for evil and turn it into good, to turn my pain into part of my prize, to turn part of my ability to produce for the kingdom of God. Jennifer and Tammy, if you can come back up. I have one last thought. Samson is in the Bible's Hall of Heroes. And you know what? At least in my Bible, there's no asterisk next to his name. There's nothing there saying, yeah, he did all that, but. But he did all these sins. You know what? God's book of life does not contain any asterisks. If you come to him wanting to be forgiven, wanting to turn your life around, there is no asterisk next to your name. Jesus takes away that asterisk and tosses it into the sea of forgetfulness. Jesus' blood removes all of that from us. And that same forgiveness that Samson found is available for you and I today.